This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. We promised a few weeks back we'd be talking about the planet Mars and about rovers on Mars and about how to pick the spot you want to land, and today's the day we're going to do all that with UC Davis Professor of Geology, Dawn Sumner. She was the co-chair of the Landing Site Working Group for the Mars Science Laboratory mission, and that's going to be fun to talk about. So stick around for that in our second segment today. But let us start today's program as we like to do with On This Date in History. The date in question being the 15th of September. It was on September 15th in the year 53, according to tradition, that the future Roman emperor Trajan was born. Trajan was the first of Rome's emperors to be born outside of Italy. If you're keeping track, he was born in what in the future would be called Spain. By all accounts, he was a damn good emperor. According to Wikipedia, as an emperor, Trajan's reputation has endured. He's, he's one of the few rulers whose reputation has survived 19 centuries of potential criticism. Among Christian theologians of the Middle Ages, Trajan was considered a virtuous pagan while the 18th century historian Edward Gibbon popularized the notion of the five good emperors, of which Trajan was the second. And you know, when we talk about stuff like this, you're not listening to Clear Channel. To continue, on September 15th in the year 1752, in the first production by a professional acting troupe in the American colonies, Lewis Hallam and his company presented William Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice in Williamsburg, Virginia. This began a long tradition of performances of the Bard in America, which has continued to the present day. It is possible that in the early days, with the language being more similar to that of Shakespeare, that the theatergoers may have had some idea what the hell was going on on the stage. Regrettably, this appears to no longer be the case, at least based on my limited experience. We hasten to add that if you do your homework, the experience of a Shakespearean play can be a marvelous thing. And chances are, if you don't, you'll be sitting there scratching your head wondering what the hell's going on up on the stage. So we recommend in this, as in everything else in life, please do your homework. And by the way, you know this was not one of the more scintillating days in history when <laughs> the list of events taking place on this date as chronicled in Today in History, the book which we rely upon for most of these items, when such things as September 15th, 1794, future U.S. President James Madison marries Dolly Payne Todd. Well, like I said, it just wasn't a red-letter day. Of course, among other non-momentous events to take place on this date, September 15th in 1821, in his Central American Declaration of Independence, Guatemalan patriot José Cecilio del Valle proclaimed freedom from Spain. And nine years later, on September 15th in 1830, the English railroad pioneer George Stevenson opened the 36-mile Liverpool to Manchester line. You know, in desperation, we're going to have to go to birthdays. By God, September 15th marks the birthday of two great men of letters and arts. That would be Robert Benchley, born on this date in 1889. He was a humorist, critic, actor, and author whose works included From Bed to Worse and My Ten Years in a Quandary. Also born on September 15th in 1894, Jean Renoir, the great French film director, whose uh, work Grand Illusion, 
and the rules of the game are considered among cinema's greatest offerings. In fact, I'm ashamed to admit that when I was interviewing the great actor Norman Lloyd and he referred to The Grand Illusion, I had to admit I'd never seen it. And if I could just describe for you the look of pity on his face. But folks, I swear, it's on my to-do list. Anyway, let's leave this date in history and go to our quote of the day, which comes from another great American humorist, the writer Oscar Levant, who said, A politician is a man who will double-cross that bridge when he comes to it. Our jokes of the day come from late-night humorists Jay Leno, David Letterman, and Jimmy Fallon, who said, respectively, You know, Rick Perry used to be a Democrat. (laughs) But then again, Barack Obama used to be a Democrat, too. That was Leno. And I tried to TiVo the GOP debate, but my TiVo fell asleep. That was Letterman. And my personal favorite, tonight was President Obama's job speech and the NFL season opener, which explains why Joe Biden got confused and dumped Gatorade on President Obama. That's uh, Jimmy Fallon. And our stat of the day, and this one is one of the more depressing ones we've had, is that apparently, according to the LATimes.com, more than 450,000 people have joined a Facebook group titled, I Hate Reading. It does have a rival group, I Love Reading, but it's attracted fewer than 45,000 members. All right, let's jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, it was a good week a couple weeks back for defending your brand after clothing retailer Abercrombie & Fitch offered, quote, a substantial payment, unquote, to the cast of MTV's Jersey Shore to stop wearing its clothes. The company stated that the show's self-proclaimed guidos and guidettes, quote, could cause significant damage to our image, unquote, as an, quote, aspirational, unquote, brand. It was, on the other hand, a bad week for breathing in an American city during the winter in the wake of a recently published study from the University of Colorado noting that during the winter, most of the airborne bacteria located in three large Midwestern cities apparently came from dog feces. Yes, these diligent researchers apparently cross-checked the bacteria that they located in the air samples against uh, that from soils, leaves, and feces from humans, cows, and dogs. And yes, there's more bad news in the story. Apparently in summer, the proportion of bacteria in the air come almost equally from soils, the leaves of trees, and dog feces. But come wintertime, when the leaves and the trees have shed their leaves and Aerosols from soils are limited by overlying snow or ice. Well, guess what's left? Yes, Christmas music may never be quite the same. Finally, it was an ugly week last week for Texans. But really, isn't every week an ugly week for Texans? Actually, in this case, it isn't all Texans. It's... uh, It's the patrons of the state's nude bars. Apparently last week, the Texas Supreme Court ruled that the $5 stripper tax levied on the patrons in these bars was indeed constitutional. 
This charge, which is also known as the poll tax, is added to the price of, of entry to each of the 169 bars in Texas that feature nude dancing. The revenue generated reputedly does provide $25 million a year to a sexual assault program. The Texas Entertainment Association had sued on behalf of club owners two years ago, arguing that the tax violated freedom of expression rights under the First Amendment. The state Supreme Court Justice Nathan Heck did not see it that way. He ruled that the combination of nudity and alcohol does not deserve constitutional protection, saying, quote, the fee is not a tax on unpopular speech, but a restriction on combining nude dancing with the aggravating influence of alcoholic consumption. Now, we use a lot of sources when we produce this radio program every week, and we do show a certain favoritism for items that come from, well, outside the box, I guess you'd say. And we have a great love of the oddball on this program, as you surely know, dear listener. And so it is, I find myself quoting from Breaking News, which is one of those chatty newsletters set out by uh, some of the businesses you may patronize. In my case, it's University Automotive in Sacramento. And I did not see this item in the press, and so I want to thank the good people over at university for uh, including this in their newsletter, but I'm just going to read it as, as it was reported. Which is to say that an ocean exploration team led by Swedish researcher Peter Lindbergh has found what some are suggesting is a crashed flying saucer. Lindbergh's team, which has had success in the past recovering sunken ships and cargo, was using sonar to look for a century-old wreck of a ship that went down carrying several cases of champagne. Instead, they discovered what they claim is a mysterious round object that might, or might not, be extraterrestrial. Lindbergh explained to local media that his crew discovered on the 300-foot deep ocean floor between Finland and Sweden a large circle about 60 feet in diameter. Accompanying this piece is a grainy photo of what does look like a dinner plate with some sort of dome on the top. We will look into this, but in our opinion, it is, it is not a crashed UFO on the bottom of the sea. Of course, that opinion, <laughs> like all those expressed in this program, do not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the regions of the University of California. Here's another item we cannot resist. Apparently, after doing genetic studies on all four American species of crocodiles in the New World, they concluded that they are most closely related to the Nile crocodiles of East Africa and must have split away roughly 7 million years ago. How did they get to the New World? Well, scientists think they swam. This remains speculative, but Radio Parallax does agree this is the most likely means of locomotion utilized by the crocodiles. Mr. McMillan, I guess we're taking a bit of a detour into the oddball, but what the hell. Article by Bill Lindelof in the Sacramento Bee caught our eye. His headline was, Mall Garage Warns of Rabid Skunk. Article noted that animal control was called when a skunk was found in an underground garage in Sacramento chasing people. Described as a possible sign of illness in the animal because skunks are nocturnal and usually not seen during the day. We would hasten to add they hardly ever chase people. According to Mr. Lindelof, the responding animal control officer also was chased and sprayed by the skunk, but he was able to catch the critter using a long pole outfitted with a noose. The skunk was taken to animal control where it was euthanized and later confirmed to have been rabid. And in other skunk-related news, which is a phrase, frankly, we just don't get to say enough here on Radio Parallax, 
Article by Matt Weiser in the B. On September 2nd, noted there's been a wave of skunk sightings in Sacramento, which is, quote, putting noses out of joint. But here's what makes me think that maybe people are spending too much time with video games. The Sacramento Bee found it necessary to include a diagram of a striped skunk. That's for those of you who <laughs> might not recognize that a f- small furry mammal about the size of a house cat which is mostly black with white on top, which extends down its back, usually separating into two white stripes, is in fact a skunk. Now, we talked earlier about doing your homework, and this certainly would be a good example of that. Dear listener, know your mammals. And uh, we have some bad news here. Uh, Article by Matt Weiser. I guess when Matt's not covering the skunk story, he's back on water. Actually, we do have to bring Mr. Weiser back on this program to to talk about, uh, well, this story. The Army Corps of Engineers is not admitting it's wrong. They say they have no intention of changing a policy that bans trees on levees, despite a new study by Corps researchers that show that trees can boost flood safety in some situations. In fact, Mr. Miller, it's time we brought back the jackass of the week, item which we've done on the show in the past. I think that uh, the unknown person at the Army Corps of Engineers who's backing up the stupidity of their policy certainly deserves it this week. Now, to quote from Matt's article... From extensive field research in Sacramento and other sites across the nation, the Corps concluded that trees at the base of levees can improve levee safety by binding the soil together with their roots. I mean, doesn't everybody know this? And it found that tree roots pose little risk of creating a path for seepage that could undermine levees. But the study also found that trees on top of levees may pose risks and that unanswered questions remain, such as whether exposed roots aggravate erosion. Corps officials pointed to these unknowns in holding fast to policy. This prompted Representative Doris Matsui from Sacramento to say this highly anticipated report should remind policymakers at the Corps of Engineers that a blanket policy prohibiting vegetation on levees is misguided and ignores scientific evidence. Unbelievable. We will continue to follow this. And other water-related stories, the people in Davis apparently are kind of ticked off about proposed increases in their water rates. Apparently, water rates from a single-family home in Davis could more than double from an average of about 35 bucks a month to 77 a month over five years. Article by Hudson Sangri in the B noted that the rate increases sought in Davis are part of a larger plan in which the neighboring cities of Davis and Woodland have agreed to buy rights to Sacramento River water from a firm controlled by prominent developer Angelo K. Sakopoulos. Sakopoulos now owns a controlling interest in the water-rich 17,000-acre Conway Ranch in the Yolo Bypass adjacent to the river. You know, it's funny, when we talked to water expert Bert Wilson about this idea, he, uh, he knew that Sakopoulos was up to some water pricing-related issues. We refer you to his excellent video on YouTube, Where Will the Water Come From? And we're going to have to bring Bert back on this program as well. I don't know. The article blandly notes that uh, Davis City officials said that surface water obtained from Conway Ranch was the best solution to the problem of salts building up and that Sakopoulos had offered them a fair deal. 
Here, try a glass of this. The first one's free. All right, in this program we've called many times for the end of our crazy drug war, which is failing on every level. But, uh, boy, here's an item from the Law of Unintended Consequences. comes from the Washington Post by Mary Beth Sheridan, Dateline San Antonio. For years, national security experts have warned that Mexico's drug violence could send waves of refugees fleeing to the United States. Now, the refugees are arriving, but they're driving BMWs and snapping up half-million-dollar homes. Tens of thousands of well-off Mexicans have moved north of the border in a quiet exodus over the past few years, according to local officials. According to local officials, border experts, and demographers. Unlike the much larger population of illegal immigrants, they are being warmly welcomed. San Antonio Mayor Julian Castro said, It goes counter to the conventional wisdom about the Mexican presence. The influx is positive. It is entrepreneurial. and One of the keys to a very successful growing city like San Antonio. Castro estimates that Mexicans own at least 50,000 of the approximately 500,000 homes and apartments in his city of 1.3 million. The article notes the size of this new wave is difficult to measure since some of the new arrivals hold dual citizenship or U.S. work visas or already had American vacation homes. One Mexican think tank, the Security and Civic Cultural Observatory, estimated last year that 230,000 people have fled the violence-wracked border city of Juarez with half going across Mexico's northern border. Apparently one uh, neighborhood near San Antonio built around a country club has so many residents from the Mexican city of Monterrey that it's been called Sonterrey. Anyway, this uh, is an item that uh, may may get uh, the attention of the country club crowd. Well, we'll have to see. At any rate, let's check in with our old pal, Mr. Will Durst. Hey guys, Will Durst here with a few quick words in the Republican debate held Wednesday night at the Ronald Reagan Library in Simi Valley. And though he was only there in spirit, Reagan must have been spinning in his grave like a rotisserie chicken in the middle of a power surge. They didn't just break his 11th commandment, thou shalt not speak ill of other Republicans. They stomped on it with football cleats and shoved it down a sewer grate with a broken rake handle. It was predicted to be a dogfight, and the crowd came ready for blood. Before Rick Perry could answer Brian Williams' question about executing 234 inmates on his watch, the audience applauded. When Newt Gingrich blamed the media for setting up the fight, the rest of the contestants dismissed him like an elderly aunt who wandered into a discussion on nuclear fission. Newt Gingrich, the soul of reason. Something has gone horribly awry. Here's some other highlights. Rick Perry supported his anti-science stance by comparing himself to Galileo. Don't ask. He hates cancer and called Social Security a Ponzi scheme. Not once, but three times. So apparently he thinks he can get elected without Florida. We learned Michelle Bachman spent the last three weekends going to restaurants and wants to drill for oil in the Everglades. So Florida's obviously not in her plans either. John Huntsman is apparently running in the wrong party. Everybody except him looked like a fifth grader trying to fake his way through a book report on something they didn't read. Ron Paul has been mauled by the TSA, and he is not happy about it. It is impossible for Mitt Romney to be outsmugged by anyone, even a Texan. Herman Cain likes chili. The country, not the food. And the major difference between Elvis Presley and Rick Santorum is Elvis might still be alive. 
It had to say the big winner was Sarah Palin, who was smart enough not to attend. But that doesn't mean she won't be around next time. And on behalf of comedians everywhere, may I just say, run, Sarah, run. For Radio Parallax, I'm Will Durst. Always a pleasure to hear from America's foremost political comic. Let's just switch gears and talk about the planet Mars with Professor Don Sumner of UC Davis. And Mr. McMillan, I think that you just have to use for bumper music Gustav Holtz's The Planets. Which planet? Uh, Mars. <laughs> 